0: This is The Guardian.
1: I'm Laura Meffiotes coming to you from Gadigal Land and this is The full Story. All this week we're taking stock of the biggest stories that shaped our year. And today, Guardian Australia's Culture Editor, Steph Harmon and Culture Editorial Assistant, Michael Sun, are joining me to dive into the year in culture. From Australia's problem with cancelled music festivals and tours to the Jennifer Coolidge Renaissance to the biggest, most exciting shows coming up next year, we've got all of that covered for you. That's up after the break. It's been a really big year with so many ups and downs in the culture and art space. It feels like so many things have just come alive, though. So many firsts in the past year in terms of shows and music and theatre. Is the arts and culture returning? What do you reckon?
0: I think we all really hope so. (laughs) (laughs) I think that, like, one thing that is returning, um, and I don't know if it's just me, but I'm pretty sure it's not, is parties. I don't know. Mikey, what do you reckon?
2: They are well and truly back. And I feel like one thing that we keep saying to each other and to our readers is that it's Sydney's hot girl summer. (laughs) Which is a reference which is like 18 months old, fully aware of that.
0: I mean, this is a very Sydney-specific thing to say, but like it has felt pretty hard during the last few years of lockouts and lockdowns. And we're starting to see all these really great late-night venues open again, places like... Big poppers and Club 77 in the city that have 24-hour licences. There's a huge scene coming out of Western Sydney now, which is like leading to great music coming out of there. It feels like we are ready to celebrate life after lockouts. And the thing that's not Sydney-specific about that is that I think this is happening in the major cities across the country. I think we're all really excited to be getting out there again.
1: Is there anything that's not returned, that's still struggling with this COVID era?
0: I mean, I would say almost... Every other part of the arts. (laughs) You know, I think we are seeing a lot more events being put on, festivals are kind of coming back, musicians are kind of coming back to stages, performing arts is stronger than ever in terms of the shows that are coming, but the biggest problem is people just aren't buying tickets like they used to. Mm. Audiences are still definitely well below 2019 levels, um, especially in Victoria, and the industry body APRA AMCOS latest data said that live music activity at least is operating at approximately 50% of the pre-COVID period. And it's not just live music either. Our arts reporter Kelly Burks talked to a bunch of the major performing arts companies in Australia and found that ticket sales were dramatically down across the board, especially pre-booked tickets. Some companies said they were down by up to 30%. So that's a huge loss. I think it's a global problem, but it feels particularly heightened in Australia. You know, I think partly it's because of the cost of living crisis, partly it's because people are still afraid to get into theatres and get into, you know, closed venues because of the risk of getting infected with COVID. Mm. And then partly I think just our habits as audiences have changed a little bit.
1: I feel like this has been reflected in, uh, it feels like a stream of cancellations Ah. of big-name artists um, that I'm seeing online. I mean, is that the direct link, that artists are cancelling because... They're just not selling enough tickets in Australia? What's going on there?
0: Well, that's certainly happening. Darren Hayes, who is the Savage Garden frontman, who's about to do a huge Australian tour, he just posted to Twitter a very honest post saying that he wasn't selling enough tickets, so he cancelled Gold Coast Show. And he was recommended by his management that he cancel more than that, but he just couldn't bring himself to do it. And I think... This is happening with a lot of musicians. Uh, just this year we've seen Santa Gold, Animal Collective, Sampa the Great, the Avalanches, Gang of Youths have all cancelled tours. But there's a variety of reasons. I mean, ticket sale is one of them. The cost of touring is a huge one, particularly touring Australia. It's mm. really expensive to hit all the major cities in a really vast country like Australia. And, and you know, there are also some of these artists are citing just plain exhaustion as well as the risk of infection. And Santa Gold talked a little bit about the fact that there's also a flooded market because all of these tours were delayed during lockdowns. Mm. So they've all backed up. They're all happening at the same time and they're coinciding with a financial crisis that means it's really hard to kind of afford tickets.
1: On top of the pandemic and the cost of living, there is also the weather and the triple dip yeah. Nina <laughs> as well. We saw the absolute chaos at Splinter in the Grass earlier this year and we know that this type of weather is going to continue throughout the summer. What does this all mean for festivals in Australia? What is that going to look like this
2: summer? Well, first of all, like, because you mentioned Splendour, I think we just need to give a very big (laughs) kudos to Nathan Jolly, um, (laughs) our writer who bravely went to Splendour this year and wrote one of my favourite articles of the year. Um, You know, listeners, avert your ears if you are (laughs) squeamish, but there's this line in, in his review where he says, once they got through the gates quote-unquote, there was no way to get into the grounds without wading through a slippery blend of mud, vomit and piss, a <laughs> knee-high horror bug that smelled of death and made you wish for it. Uh,
0: <laughs> and, I mean, the site had been waterlogged well in advance, for months in advance of the festival, so they probably could have planned for it.
1: It was kind of just a warning of things to come, That's though, right? right? That, yeah. It's kind of the more dramatic example of the types of problems that festivals have been facing all year and mm. are going to continue to face throughout the summer, what are festivals doing to respond to just this absolutely obscene weather patterns that we're seeing along the East Coast?
0: Well, look, I've been covering music for maybe 15 years now as a music journalist. So I've never seen anything like this in terms of the amount of festivals that have been cancelling this year. Mm.
2: I would almost say an unprecedented number of festivals, not to use that word, have been either experiencing difficulties or being cancelled, some permanently. Just off the top of my head, you know, like festivals like Strawberry Fields, This That, The Grass Is Greener, Yours and ours. I'm just reading off a list right now. <laughs> yes,
0: definitely off the top of your head.
2: Sunset Sounds, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. All these festivals and it has like lingering repercussions on, you know, their ability to return for future years but also on the, on the staff who work on those festivals and just the amount of money that has already been sunk into it by organisers, promoters and like time that's been spent in it by a crew.
0: It's no wonder there's huge staff shortages happening now. People are just leaving the industry. Interestingly, the Albanese government committed $22 million for a live performance support fund in September. But if you look into that, the fund actually only covers events that are cancelled or affected after positive COVID cases, which require mandatory isolation periods that affect those festivals. And there's no mandatory isolation periods anymore either. So where is that? Twenty-three million. I mean, I think a lot of people in the industry probably would like to see it applied to festivals that are cancelled due to the climate crisis.
1: Especially seeing as Albanese's Instagram has just been posts of him with various musicians over the past couple yeah, of weeks. that's right. In, in COVID isolation last week I saw him posting his, you know, listening playlist to get through ISO, all Australian musicians. Yeah. He is a big supporter here. You would expect him to yes. come through. <laughs>
0: and it is a treat to have a, you know, a government in that cares about the arts, but I think the industry is waiting for them to put their money where their mouth is. Mm.
1: I know overseas in festivals like Glastonbury, people turn up in gumboots and raincoats. You kind of assume you're just going to be covered in mud. Do Australian festival goers need to change how they prepare for a festival? going forward yeah
2: gumboots have kind of always been a necessity but I feel like even gumboots this year weren't really enough like I was in the Splendour Facebook group just out of pure voyeurism like hundreds of posts coming through of people being like please like remember to take your gumboots off at the end of the day or like dry your foot because people were getting trench foot oh my um, god (laughs) which was truly truly grotesque and awful for these people Um, Also, if you bring a gumboot, as I learnt very quickly on my first blender in the Grass, don't vomit in it.
0: Oh, Mikey. (laughs) I could have told you that before your first Splendor in the Grass.
2: But what other tips do you have? Yeah, that's a helpful tip.
0: (laughs) Well, uh, we did actually compile a list of tips of how to survive a wet festival season, which included things like, um, my one was probably very basic, but Putting your phone and your phone cables and a charging pack in a Ziploc bag and Mm. saving the festival schedule to your home screen so you don't run out of battery by checking the app every two minutes. Mm -hmm. Um, Never wear Birkenstocks. Never wear jeans. They Mm. get too wet. They do not dry. And bring blister plasters, I would say. They're my biggest tips
1: that's kind of the more dire side of the music scene this year. But there has been really exciting developments this year as well. I was stoked to see a whole bunch of First Nations musicians nominated and winning Aria Awards this year. We had new rapper Baker Boy just absolutely dominate at yeah. the award mm. season. Steph, you were actually there. What was the big news from the Arias?
0: Yeah, I mean, Baker Boy was amazing. Uh, he also performed incredible. The Arias, it feels like there's been a bit of a shake-up, you know, In it's the second year for the new CEO, Annabelle Hurd, who took over after Dennis Handlon quit amid a lot of controversy um, a couple of years ago. And they've shaken up and diversified the voting pools as well quite a bit, which I think is part of why we're celebrating really great talent instead of just extremely commercially successful talent, like Baker Boy this year, Gen- Genesis Owusu swept all the categories last year too. Mm. There were a few moments where I was a little less impressed. Um, <laughs> like what? I, I, I grimaced uh, when the Wiggles won Best Live Act. Um, I feel like this Wiggles renaissance has gone too far. Neve to end. I mean,
1: uh, <laughs>
0: First Triple J, now the Arias, yeah,
2: what next? We are I mean, probably going to get cancelled for saying that. I though. know, and
0: we don't have children, we should acknowledge that. But <laughs> they won Best Live Act on a night where we saw Amel and the Sniffers perform live and Baker Boy perform live. And it's like those are two pretty amazing live acts.
1: Were there other disappointments in the kind of winners at the Arias?
0: I think, look, I think the Arias is still not really capturing the best in Australian music. Mm. Uh, only one in five nominees, for instance, were non-male, which is something that Mulrat, um, a great artist, pointed out after she wasn't nominated earlier this year. And it remains a pretty closed door for independent artists as well. Tasman Keith called that out earlier this year too. I'm not super sure anyone really cares about the results of the Arias as well. Mm.
1: What do you think, Mike? Are the Arias still relevant? Are you looking to the Arias for what to put on your
2: Spotify playlist or are you looking elsewhere? I'm going to say absolutely not. And I'm so sorry to the Arias for saying that. Um, But I also feel like it's part of this Almost global trend, I would say. Like, are awards shows in general still relevant? Because I think even if you look to the US, there's been a lot of chatter about the Golden Globes over there, and they've experienced a lot, a lot of controversy as well, especially in recent years. You know, it's almost we are experiencing this anti awards show surge where people are realizing that the people who run them don't necessarily reflect the demographic of who is experiencing the content or, or who is even making the work itself.
0: Mm. I would say the most, thing, most relevant thing an award show can do right now is have an extremely viral moment, which we should also talk about. <laughs> oh,
2: wow. Wow.
0: <laughs> Will Smith just smacked the shit out of me. I think one of the biggest... Uh, moments in pop culture this year, certainly for Guardians Traffic, was the <laughs> the Oscar slap. It was a G.I. Jane jump. Keep my wife's
2: name out your
0: fucking mouth! I'm going to, okay. The Will Smith moment. The moment
1: um, that launched a thousand hot takes. Oh basically. my god, way
0: too many takes. But like our readers couldn't get enough of it.
1: Mm. That was a greatest night in the history of television. Okay.
0: I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens. I mean, Emancipation, the new Will Smith film, is getting Oscar buzz and he has been banned from all Oscars events for the next decade. So, you know, if he wins, that's going to be interesting. Mm,
1: My favourite moment of all award shows this year was definitely Jennifer Coolidge's acceptance speech at the Emmys.
2: Hi. Hey, hi. 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 Wow, thank you. Gosh. I just, um... What a night! Did you guys
0: see this? Yes, yes, and thank you for giving us a chance to talk about the White Lotus.
1: She got up and just seemed to be breathless and talked about being in a lavender bar.
2: And um, right before
1: the show, and it made me swell up inside my dress, and uh,
2: I'm having a hard time speaking. Um, but anyway, um,
1: it was just so chaotic, which uh, is so perfectly Jennifer Coolidge. I mean. I feel like one of the stories of this year is the renaissance of Jennifer Coolidge. Surely,
2: have you guys been engaging in the online discourse? Oh, you know we have. Like, <laughs> I feel like we are all Coolidge heads. What What should we call her fan base? What should we call ourselves?
1: Cool Coolers, cats. Cool. cool cats.
2: Okay, that's terrible. We'll work on that. I, I think that. she's like genuinely just such an like an an eccentric person, and mm. we need more people who are genuinely weird in the spotlight.
1: White Lotus was really a sensation. It's really, I feel like we're talking about it because it's just wrapped up yeah. you know, in recent weeks, but it did win the most Emmys out of any show. There were so many other shows that are incredible that we should be talking about, though. What are your best picks for, for TV this year?
0: Uh, I've got to give a shout-out to Heartbreak High, actually.
2: My best friend me! I'm a regent. I have a lazy kebab vagina! <laughs>
0: I think... This show confused a few people. I think people were really expecting the reboot to hark back to the original. But I think what they did was really, really interesting, extremely sweet, very fun to watch, very gripping and quite real. Like It felt like it really captured that Gen Z vibe, the conversations people are having, the way people talk. I thought Mm. it was really, really great. And obviously it was a big hit for Netflix Australia and on TikTok. It's already been renewed, which we love to see it. Um, The other big Australian TV moment... Obviously, it was Neighbours and the huge finale for which they ruled out Jason Donovan and Kylie Minogue. Mm. We all tuned in to say goodbye to Ramsey Street. We even did an episode about it on the podcast saying the end of Neighbours. I'll tell you what, The Guardian did quite a bit of coverage (laughs) uh, before the shock announcement that it was going to return thanks to Amazon. So, you know, coming back. I think for me,
1: my favorite TV of the year has to be out of all of the many, many, many Star Wars reboots is Andor. Oh yeah, huge show.
2: To steal from the Empire. you just walk in like you belong? They're so proud of themselves. So fat and satisfied. They can't imagine that someone like me would ever get inside their house.
1: It was actually, I think, just one of the most powerfully written Star Wars creation
0: ever. We wrote a piece to the effect that it was definitely the mm. best TV Star wars thing. I, I guess it is controversial to say of all time in Star Wars <laughs> universe, uh, but it definitely got a lot of love. It felt like a bit of a sleeper hit too.
1: mm Uh, It was a sleeper hit also in terms of um, how it progressed because the first few episodes I wouldn't say it was my favourite show of all time but Mm. by the end, you know, just the nuance. You have characters that are evil but also a little bit good. You have characters that are good but a bit evil. Mm. You're, You're looking at how power works. In terms of, you know, imperialism and colonialism in different societies, in prisons. There's yeah. just so much to, to dive in there. Mm. Um, if anyone hasn't watched it, obviously come and give it a go.
0: Mikey, what were your favorites?
2: My favorite show this year, which is possibly like the like nerdiest thing I'll ever say, is um, was the adaptation of Flashman is in trouble.
1: Mm, I haven't um, seen this yet.
2: Which is the te- which is a Taffy Brodessa akner book.
0: This is a story about everything. It's about life and marriage and how young love <laughs> can become old resentment.
2: His wife has essentially left him and gone missing and he's now left with the two young children that they share and he kind of goes on this like very existential journey looking into himself and his, and his past and potentially how awful of a person he's been throughout his entire life and going on this like very neurotic journey throughout this as he kind of tries to find his wife and explores all the different avenues um, of where she might be slash who she might be with. Mm-hmm. Um The TV adaptation, I think, is just, like, so impeccably made and it's, like, Jesse Eisenberg is Fleischman. What? Are you
0: crazy? You've reached Rachel Fleischman.
2: Is she still gone? I'm starting to think that it hasn't really gone on this long, you know? What if something has happened Which is just, like, the most perfect fit. Like, any neurotic 30-something could be Jesse Eisenberg in my mind.
1: Mm. Okay, so that's a pretty comprehensive wrap of TV. What about film? It's been an
0: incredible year in film. What, What are your top picks? Oh, I think my favourite was actually Jordan Peele's Nope. I mean, Mm. excellent marketing campaign but total payoff as well. Mm, I don't like horror movies whatsoever and
1: it actually got me going to the cinema. Yeah, there
0: was so much to it. Like I had so many great conversations about film after that film. Like it was, yes, a horror film but it was also so self-referential and meta and just I really loved it.
2: Michael, what about you? Well, we were talking about the Jennifer Coolidge renaissance just then But I feel like it's almost been a year of big renaissances. I mean, in film, we've also seen um, the big Brendan Fraser comeback vehicle, The Whale by Darren Aronofsky, which premiered to quite, like, buzzy acclaim. And, like, a lot of people are saying that it marks Fraser's return to Hollywood and to cinema after, you know, like, years of trauma and years of, you know, like, very negative experiences. This kind of marks his grand and triumphant return in a character actor vehicle. There obviously also has been some controversy around that Mm. film as well. Around him wearing a fat suit. Yes, indeed, which I encourage you to dive into all of that around the film. Um, But yes, Brendan Fraser. We also saw a big star vehicle for Michelle Yeoh, who, you know, has been very prolific and has been working all her life, but um, in many ways, everything, everywhere, all at once, formed this giant almost like homage to Michelle Yeoh's entire career I can see where this story is going it does not look And it's, like, launched her into this new stratospheric level of acclaim in Western cinema as well. Mm. Um, and I That think- was probably
1: my favourite film of the year, I would say. I've never before have I gasped and laughed yeah. so much in a cinema, actually.
2: In, like, both times I've watched it, like, in the cinema, people were had tears streaming down their face, um, which is something that I haven't seen since Titanic, probably. <laughs> <laughs> How old were you when Titanic came out? The Titanic, when it returned to cinemas in 3D. <laughs> okay, yes, yes, good clarification. Um.
1: Next, the shows that you should definitely go and see in 2023. Laura Murphy-Oates here. If you're enjoying Full Story, I think you'll really like another podcast we make here at Guardian Australia called Book It In. On Book It In, some of Australia's favourite authors open up about the ideas behind their books in personal and thought-provoking conversations that you won't hear anywhere else. This week, you'll hear historian Rachel Franks talk about what it's like living in the head of a real-life hangman in colonial Australia, who also had a missing nose.
0: So here is this guy with the absolute worst job on the government books and he gets stressed every day and he takes the shame of his profession, he takes the taunting of children because of his disfigurement and nothing
1: really stops him from going to work and still trying to be the best employee that he can be. Subscribe now to book it in on your favourite podcast player and listen to this episode with Rachel Franks on Thursday. The Guardian's also done some incredible reporting in arts and culture throughout the years. Steph, what's, what's your favourite piece? That the Guardian has done in this space in oh, 2022. It's
0: like asking me to pick my baby. <laughs> um, look, I've got to give a shout out for uh, to Kelly Burke, our arts reporter, and Alyssa Blake, who covered a lot of the crisis in the arts. But I think my favourite story of the year was uh, an investigation that came from a freelancer into the Australian author John Hughes and his Miles Franklin-nominated work, *The Dogs*. Um, this was a really interesting plagiarism story that came out of quite an unusual approach. I got an email from Anna Vernet, who I'd never met before, who's an academic and writer, and she basically just chanced upon it. She had just happened to read The Unwomanly Face of War, which is a non-fiction work by Nobel Prize-winning author Svetlana Aleksevich, and then happened to follow it up with John Hughes's novel, The Dogs, and then just happened to remember particular lines and phrases that chimed with her as being quite familiar. And so she started a spreadsheet and started just filling it in manually, comparing the two texts, and came to us. And after she came to us, I read through her spreadsheet and was like, wow, this is pretty phenomenal. Um, we ran that both books through software and found nearly 60 similarities and identical sentences. Um, and it, after her piece was published, the book was withdrawn from the Miles Franklin. Um, John Hughes said that he's always kind of spoken through the voices of others and he did apologise for appropriating passages from Alexovich's book and said that it was inadvertent. But after his apology, the novel was found to contain sections that were nearly identical to some other books as well, including The Great Gatsby and Anna Karenina. He's denied that he's a plagiarist and he's referred to his work instead as a kind of writing collage, saying that every artist takes and repurposes the work of others and that's been going on since the ancient Greek tragedies. And, yeah, there's a certain truth to that. He he actually wrote an opinion piece for us explaining this, which you can find online, but in the wash-up, the publisher distanced herself from him, saying that her trust had been breached as well. And the literary community, we spoke to a lot of people who remained a little bit unconvinced. I mean, there's definitely an argument uh, for the case that if you are going to uh, create a writing collage of other people's works, you should probably reference them at some point.
1: Do you think this could have flow on effects going forward, Steph? I
0: think it certainly was a wake-up call to the Australian publishing industry, which has never been great at fact-checking at the best of times. And I think it also meant that, you know, you can get away with a little bit less when there's something so high-profile happens.
1: Michael, what about you? What was your favourite reporting in The Guardian in this space in 2022?
2: I mean, you know that I would have literally just chosen Nathan Jolly's Splendor Review. Um, (laughs) Thank you, Nathan, for being in the trenches, quite literally. But (laughs) if I had to choose something else, I think we're going to go more afield this time over to the UK. They actually ran a series called Discovery Channels that I really enjoyed. And it was a series that was all about how people are rediscovering their love for music discovery. And one of the cornerstone pieces was from Liz Pelly, who wrote about people who have actually turned their back on Spotify and are resorting to more traditional methods of listening in order to stop getting served by the Spotify algorithm and actually be able to find new music out of their traditional genres again.
0: Like, mm. well, what, what do they turn to?
2: I mean, someone in the article that she's interviewed bought a used iPod on eBay, so is now completely just like downloading MP3s again and loading them up onto his iPod. There are also like a bunch of tips from Shad D'Souza um, at the end of the article about how to, you know, not fall into the trap of Spotify, Mm. and it includes tips on how to navigate, you know, things like Bandcamp or like a rundown of online radio stations Mm. which exist, so you get served other tastes beyond just the taste in your very specific algorithm bubble. Mm. Um, And I think it's something that, like, I have been experiencing as well, as I'm sure we all have as well. Like, I just get sucked into these holes of Spotify radio recommended Mm. and it's just, like, like, it's, like, all, like, Sad Girl Indie Rock, one after the other.
1: (laughs) (laughs) We're entering into a new year very soon. What are you looking forward to in the new year? What kind of things will you be reporting on? What kind of events are you excited to see?
0: Tell me about it. All right, I'm going to give a, I'm going to give Guardian Australia's Arts Desk a little bit of a plug, mm-hmm. um, because I am really looking forward to going to things all summer. I'm just going to be out doing as much as possible, and we launched a really big uh, events guide, which is the first time in Guardian Australia's history. It's called Summer in the City. It's ever changing really curated guide to all the best things happening in every capital city in Australia, which has been compiled by our freelance arts writers from around the country. So I just picked out a couple knowing this question was coming. Um, For Sydney, uh, one of my top picks at Sydney Festival is going to be Sun and Sea, which is a Lithuanian climate crisis opera. Um, I've made it sound very dire.
1: (laughs) Your most exciting thing is a climate crisis opera. (laughs) you lie on the sand. Uh, Well, you
0: don't lie on the sand, Michael, but um, (laughs) the sand is going to be part of it. So 26 tonnes of sand are being shipped into the bottom level of Sydney's town hall. Wow! And you roam around the balconies above watching an opera, which kind of plays on loop on the beach below, people lounging and dozing and playing games while they're singing about nature and climate change. It won the Golden Lion at the 2019 Venice Biennale and is an Australian exclusive. So I'm excited about that. I'm also like... Super keen for Sydney World Pride, which is going to happen a few months after Sydney Festival and going to be epic. In Melbourne, there is a very great play coming called Seven Methods of Killing Kylie Jenner, which I think was the hottest ticket in town in Sydney when it played here. I just missed out oh on my a ticket. God, it was so good. Go to Melbourne for it. <laughs> yeah. It's such a fun, whip smart, extremely online play about race and cultural appropriation and queerness and social media, written by Jasmine Lee Jones. Totally recommend it. And probably the biggest thing coming to Brisbane in the next few months is going going to be Hamilton which opens on the 27th of January. The Australian production is amazing like I'm not just saying it; it's better than the show that I saw on Broadway so mm. I think that's that's a huge one for Brisbane. There's also a great show on at GOMA called Air Right Now Until April which I'd recommend people check out too.
1: What about you Michael?
2: I mean, I feel like it would be remiss to not mention Laneway, which is coming next year. Yes, national Um, tour. Exactly. so excited about that. Given that you've just heard about Ms. Dev's extremely aligned, sad girl taste. Yeah. Um, You can already imagine what this Laneway lineup includes. Phoebe Bridges, The Haim, Morat. Yeah. um, But also artists outside of that alley as well. So if you can get tickets, it's going to be like a huge lineup. Also... Speaking about other gigs being back, I like. I just feel like there is this huge influx of pop girlies coming to Australia. Yes, I'm talking Charlie XCX, Carly Ray Jepsen, Muna, Phoebe Bridges, as I just said, Rina Sawayama. Like they're they're literally all coming in the first four months of next year. I'm
1: considering seeing Carly Rae twice. Well, she definitely should. It <laughs> is going
2: to be like a smorgasbord, um, for for all the girls, gays and bays yes. in, in Australia. I'm also, again, very, very lame thing for me to say, but I'm also very excited for Pavement to come to Australia. Oh, my gosh, wow.
0: Yeah, um, This has gone over
2: my head. Pavement. I'm gonna be the,
0: Pavement's gone over your head. Oh, you've got so much to discover.
2: I'm going <laughs> to be the only person under 40 in that marsh um, and, I, and I'm going to be rocking out with my jocks out. So,
0: I mean, I think the... the oh, my God, I can't believe you said that. <laughs> We have just spent the first half of this podcast talking about how many cancellations we've had and how festivals are so fraught. But I guess the takeaway is that we are feeling pretty optimistic about the first half of next year.
1: Mm, I wish everyone a hot girl summer, hot yeah. girl winter, autumn, mm. spring, all seasons. Yes,
0: love it. Thank yous and goodbyes. Thank,
2: Thank you. you. And goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That was Michael Sun and Steph Harmon from Guardian Australia's culture team. You can read more of their coverage at theguardian.com, including the Summer in the City guide that we spoke about in this episode. We've linked to that on the Full Story page. That is it for today. This episode was produced by Karish Malithria and Joe Koning, who also did the sound design and mixing. The executive producer of this episode was me, Laura Murphy Oates. Okay, catch you tomorrow.